are listening to Stories from Palestine podcast, a bi-weekly podcast recorded in Palestine and about Palestine. My name is Crystal. I studied history and tour guiding, and I live in Palestine with my Palestinian husband and children. I'm originally from the Netherlands. I am a licensed tour guide by the Palestinian Authority. And yes, you can hire me for tours. Follow me on social media and visit my website to learn more about organized tours and programs. You can find the links in the show notes. I hope you will enjoy listening to this episode. After the double episode I did on the Holy Sepulchre Church in Jerusalem, I decided to do a double episode about the other very important church in Palestine, the Nativity Church in Bethlehem. In the first part, you can hear more about the history of the church. And the second part is a virtual tour that you could use as a guided audio tour if you were to visit the Church of Nativity in Bethlehem yourself. When visitors come to Bethlehem, they usually come to see the Church of the Nativity. And I usually start by telling them that I am going to debunk the Christmas story the way that they have learned it. Especially the idea that Jesus was born in a stable. Most people back home have some kind of nativity set under their Christmas tree. And most of the time it is a set with Joseph, Mary baby Jesus, some animals, and maybe shepherds and wise men in a wooden stable. But when you visit Bethlehem, you will realize that the birthplace of Jesus was not a stable, not the way that we imagine a stable from our foreign perspectives. If you've listened to my podcast episodes, then you know that Palestine is the land of caves. And that caves have been used ever since the first human species came out of Africa as dwellings and as places to store food and as production houses, places to have your olive press, tombs also to bury dead people, and definitely also as stables for animals. So when we visit the Church of the Nativity, we're going to visit a church that is built over a cave that was in use more than 2,000 years ago as a stable, a place where animals could spend the night and the cold days when they were not out in the fields. And you will have to go down the stairs in order to get down into the cave or the grotto of the nativity, as it's called, to reach the place that is believed by many to be the place where Mary delivered baby Jesus. Now, before I start describing you the church and telling you more about the history of the building, let's start with the biblical account of the birth of Jesus and also get to some differences in understanding between the local Christians and the foreign Christians about what actually happened. Going back in history 2000 years at the time of Jesus' birth, Palestine was under Roman rule. And the Roman emperor at that time was Caesar Augustus. The Roman Empire was big, and it was so big that it was divided into different provinces, and each province had its own governor. And the governor of the region of Syria and Palestine was called 
Quirinius. Now, the provinces were also subdivided again into smaller territories, and Bethlehem was situated in an area that was called Judea. And Judea had its own client king. He was called Herod the Great, and he ruled Judea, but he was subordinate to Rome. So this is the political context of the time of the birth of Jesus. And in the Bible book of Luke, we can read the following. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And this was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. Now, there is a debate between scholars if this event actually really took place and whether the inhabitants were really required to go to their hometowns to register for the census. The census was held to know how much taxes the Romans could ask from the inhabitants. Some scholars and theologians will say that this part of the history was added by the author, by Luke, to make a stronger connection between Jesus and the family line of David. David, who was the king around a thousand years before the birth of Jesus, and he came from Bethlehem. He was born in Bethlehem. And when he became king, he had, according to the Bible, not according to archaeology, but according to the Bible, he had established a large kingdom. And he was, and he is still seen by the Jewish people as their great ancestor. And in the Bible, there are several prophecies that predicted that the Messiah would be born from the line of this king, David. So in order to make sure that people would believe that Jesus was the Messiah, Luke may have added this element into the story, the element of the census and the reason why they would come down all the way from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Then we read in the Bible, in the book of Luke, the following. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloth and placed him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, the Greek word that is used for the inn is kataluma. And kataluma can be translated as inn, but also as a guest room or a guest chamber. And Bethlehem in that time was very small. It probably did not have more than a few hundred people. And it was not on any of the major trade routes. So it's kind of unlikely that there would have been inns in the town. And local Christian Palestinians would stress that in the culture here, it is very common that if you come to stay in your hometown, you will definitely stay with family members and not in any kind of inn or guest house. And the houses in those days, they were built with an upper floor where you would host your guests, and then the ground floor would be for the household work, 
for cooking and where you would keep your animals. And you have to imagine the area where Bethlehem is. It's on the mountain range, which consists of limestone, and it has a lot of natural caves. So many people would build their house close to a cave, and then the cave could be used for storage and for animals as a stable. Now imagine that Joseph and Mary arrived after a journey of probably three days walking if they came from Nazareth all the way to Bethlehem, and they would knock the door of an uncle or a cousin of Joseph because Joseph had family in Bethlehem. He was from there. And then maybe they said to him, I am really sorry, but we don't have space in our guest room in the Cataluma because we already have other guests. I mean, there was a census. A lot of people were coming to Bethlehem. So then he would have tried another uncle or another cousin, knock their door, and they'd say, oh, we're really sorry, we already have guests. We don't have space in our guest room. And then eventually, one of the far cousins maybe said, we don't have space in the Cataluma, in the guest room, but we do have a cave. We can get rid of the animals or move them to the side, and you can spend the night there. And that is what local Palestinian Christians say to explain the fact that Jesus was born in a cave. So, of course, we will never know how exactly the story went. And also, stories always change over time. You know, they can be adapted to fit a certain narrative and additions can be made and parts of the story, some details can get lost And if you are from a different part of the world, you will imagine the story in your own context and setting. So that is why the wooden stable came up. And that is all right. It's not a big deal. But you will be surprised when you visit Bethlehem and come to the Church of the Nativity to find that the birth of Jesus, according to local tradition, took place in a cave. So, how sure are scholars that this is indeed the birth cave of Jesus? They look at some of the earliest mentions in written records, and it is around 150 years after Jesus' birth that we can read in the infancy gospel of James, which is not part of the Bible, it is not part of the accepted books of the Bible that we call the canon, It's an apocryphal book, but it mentions the birth of Jesus in a cave. And only a little later, there is another mention of the birth cave by Justin Martyr, who came from today's Nablus. And he wrote a book called Dialogue with Trifo, in which he defended the Christian religion and in which he also writes about the birth cave of Jesus. And then in the third century, there is another writer, theologian and writer called Origen. He was educated in Alexandria in Egypt, and he writes the following. If anyone not being satisfied with the prophecy of Micah and the history recorded in the Gospels by the disciples of Jesus desires additional evidence that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, let him consider the fact that in Bethlehem there is shown the cave where he was born. And in this cave there is the manger in which he was wrapped in swaddling cloth. 
And all of this is in conformity with the narrative in the Gospels regarding his birth. And it is well known in these places, even among those who are enemies to the faith, that in this cave was born he who is worshipped and regarded with wonder by Christians, Jesus. So these are some early written sources that mention the birth cave. Another argument that is often made is that the emperor at the time, Roman Emperor Hadrian, did not want the Jews and the Christians in Judea to worship their one God. He didn't like monotheism. He was a polytheist and he believed that he was one of the representatives of the gods. So he made an effort to stop all the Jewish and the early Christian worship. He expelled Jews from Jerusalem and he built a temple on the location where the tomb of Jesus was. We talked about this in the podcast about the Holy Sepulchre Church. If you didn't listen to that one yet, you can also listen back. And just a few weeks ago, they actually excavated remains of the temple that Hadrian built under the Holy Sepulchre Church. So they dug down into the floor of the Holy Sepulchre Church and they found the remains of a temple that Hadrian built so that people would forget about the cave where Jesus was buried, about the tomb where Jesus was buried. And about Bethlehem, the theologian and translator of the Bible to Latin, St. Jerome, he writes that when he came to Bethlehem, it was a deserted place and the cave was covered by a wooden grove that was dedicated to one of the rural gods called Tammuz, which was one of the Canaanite gods. This is understood as an attempt, an active attempt of the Romans to make this place into a pagan worship place. Also, the bishop of Nola in Italy, he writes the following, he says, For the emperor Hadrian, in the belief that he could destroy the Christian faith by the dishonoring of a place, dedicated a statue of Jupiter on the place of the Passion, and Bethlehem was profaned, by a grove of Adonis. And Adonis was often related to the rural god of Tammuz. So this may have been the same place that they are talking about, that the cave of birth was now being worshipped as a pagan place. And another historical document dates from the year 315 after Christ was born. This is by the Greek historian Eusebius. And he says that The cave is shown there by the inhabitants to those who come from abroad to see it. So those were some examples of mentions of the cave in early documentation. And then in the year 326, the mother of the new emperor, Constantine, her name is Queen Helena, comes to visit the Holy Land And she is a Christian. By that time, Christianity is becoming the new religion of the Roman Empire. And she orders the building of three churches. One of them in Jerusalem, you know, is the Holy Sepulchre Church. She builds another church to commemorate the ascension of Jesus on the Mount of Olives. And she builds a church over the birth cave of Jesus. And this is all mentioned in the book 
Life of Constantine, which was written by Eusebius. And a few years later, in the year 333, easy to remember, there was a traveler who came to this region. We don't know his name, but we know he came from Bordeaux in France. So he's called the Bordeaux Pilgrim. He left a travel diary. And in his travel diary, he refers to the basilica that is built in Bethlehem by Constantine. And he says it was dedicated on the 31st of May in the year 339. So that is the year that we use for the start of the Church of the Nativity, built from 326 and dedicated in 339. This first church building had an octagon shape, eight-sided, and it is called in Greek martyrion and in Latin martyrium. These were the languages that were used in that time. And this eight-sided octagonal shaped building was built over the birth cave. It was very common in Byzantine time to build these kind of octagon shaped buildings. The word martyrion or martyrium in Latin means witness. These buildings were built over a place where an important biblical event had taken place. We see the same, for example, with the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, but also in Capernaum, for example, at the Sea of Galilee, they found an octagon-shaped building that was built around the house of Peter, where Jesus stayed during the time that he lived in Capernaum, and which was one of the first places where the first Christians came together after Jesus had been resurrected and ascended. So. These kind of octagon-shaped churches were very common in Byzantine time. Nearby where I live in Beit Safafa, on the Hebron Road between Jerusalem and Bethlehem, they also found the octagon-shaped Katisma church, which remembers a story that Mary, on her way to Bethlehem, went off the donkey that she was sitting on to take a rest, and she sat on a stone, and this Katisma church was built around the stone where Mary rested. There are many other examples of octagon-shaped churches in the Byzantine period. Here in Bethlehem, there was such an octagon-shaped building over the cave. And then right next to that, a basilica was made. And that was in the same place, the same direction as today's church, the nave of the church. And to remind you that Basilica was originally a public building in Roman times. So we think of Basilica now as the word for church, but originally it was a public building with a specific layout. So it had a long middle nave and then one or two aisles on each side. And those were separated from the nave by columns. And when Constantine started to build the first churches, that was the style of building that they knew for large gatherings, for public buildings. So they used the style of the basilica to build the first churches. And then later, we started to use the word basilica to refer to a church. The word basilica actually comes from the Greek word basileus, 
and Greek was still the commonly used language in that time. And Basileus means king. So basilica means something like royal. And the Greeks, they had the basilica stoa, the place where the king would receive guests. So the Romans took this word and used it for their public buildings. And that's how the basilica entered into the church history. Now, from this time period, from the first Constantine church, they found and discovered the original mosaic floor. The floor that is now underneath a newer floor from the 6th century. And this 4th century mosaic floor, dating back to the very first church that was built by Constantine, has recently been renovated and now it is protected by some wooden planks. Usually they are lifted, they are open so you can see the mosaic floor, but they protect them, obviously, so you can't walk on them. You see them from above. Now, I'll get a little bit more into the history of the church before we start entering the church in our audio tour. So about 50 years after the church was built, there was a priest and theologian who was called Hieronymus. We also know him as Saint Jerome. And Hieronymus established a monastery at the Church of the Nativity. And this Jerome, or Hieronymus, he became known for his efforts of translating the Bible from Hebrew to Latin, because by that time, the Bible was available in Hebrew and in Greek. And some books of the Bible had been translated into Latin, but it was always based on the Greek translation and not on the original Hebrew. So Jerome came to live in Palestine in order to learn Hebrew, and he worked on a direct translation from the Hebrew language to Latin. And that translation is called the Vulgate. When he came to live in the monastery at the Church of the Nativity, he was sponsored by a rich widow from an aristocratic family from Italy, and her name was Paula. And Paula also moved to live in Bethlehem together with her daughter, Eustochium. And we can see these women depicted in the cave where Jerome translated the Bible. There is a painting near the altar and also, by the way, on the bronze doors that give entrance to the Catholic Church, the Church of St. Catherine, which is right next to the Nativity Church. But we will talk about that when we get into that church in our virtual tour. So let's first finish off with the history of the church itself. So the church was built and dedicated in the 4th century and the monastery was added by St. Jerome. And these two buildings stood until the year 529. That is the year in which the Samaritans revolted. They revolted against the Byzantine rule and they destroyed many churches during their revolt, including the Church of the Nativity. They basically set fire to the church and it was in a very bad shape. It didn't take long for the church to be rebuilt. That was done under the leadership of the emperor at that time called Justinian. So we 
then refer to the first church as the Constantinian church and the second rebuilt church as the Justinian church. He didn't only rebuild it, he changed it a bit. The octagon shape, the martyrium or martyrium, was replaced now and the church was built in the shape of a cross with a nave in the middle, aisles to the side, a transept and an apse. And that made the shape of a cross, which is a very common shape that we see in the design of churches. The cave of the nativity, the grotto where Jesus was born, was now under the middle apse, under the chancel in the easternmost part of the church. This new church was decorated with a big mosaic panel on the outside of the church, on the entrance, on the facade. And on this mosaic, they depicted the three wise men who were coming to bring gifts to Jesus. And it was written that they came from the east, so they chose to depict them in Persian-style dress. And this is important because it is probably the reason why we can still visit the church that was dedicated in 533 under Emperor Justinian. Although, of course, there are some later renovations and additions, but it is, in its core, still the same building as Justinian built in the 6th century. So it's the oldest Christian church still in use. And why was it so important, the mosaic? Because the church survived the attacks of the Persians who came in the year 614. They destroyed almost all the churches and monasteries in Palestine, but they decided not to destroy the Church of Nativity. And why did they leave it undisturbed? Because they saw the mosaic on the front of the church with the Persian dresses. And they thought, hey, they look just like us. They are Persian magis, they are Persian astrologers, they are Persian wise men. These are people like us and they may have something to do with our culture and our traditions. They maybe did not realize what the function of the building was or they didn't know why there were people with Persian dresses depicted on the church, but that was, according to scholars, probably the reason why the church was not destroyed. So the Nativity Church survived the Persians, and then soon after the Persians left, the Byzantines were defeated by the Muslims who arrived in the year 638 under the leadership of Omar ibn al-Khattab. Now we enter into a new phase of the history of Palestine. And when Omar ibn al-Khattab arrived to Palestine, he went to Jerusalem and he made a pact with the Archbishop Sophronius. Because in that time, Palestine was under Byzantine rule. It had been Christian. And generally, the Christian population of Palestine was treated well by the new Muslim rulers. And every tour guide will tell you about the visit of Omar ibn al-Khattab to Jerusalem and Bethlehem and that 
he respected the holy places. In Jerusalem, it is said that he refused the invitation to pray inside the Church of the Holy Sepulchre because he didn't want Muslims to come and then claim the holy site if he had prayed there. In Bethlehem, there's a different story. The story that circulates among the locals is that he did pray inside the church and that he particularly prayed in the southern apse of the church, but that after that he proclaimed publicly to all Muslims that they cannot claim the church as a Muslim holy site and that if they want to visit and pray there, they can come as individuals but not pray in groups in the church and not call for prayer in the church. So it should not become a place of worship, but a place to visit. Because for Muslims, it is because for Muslims, Jesus is also an important prophet and they do respect him a lot. They just don't see Jesus as the son of God or as the Messiah. Fast forward now to the year 1009. This is the year in which the Fatimid Muslim Caliph, Al-Hakim, also known as the Mad Caliph, ordered the destruction of all the churches in the Holy Land. This is the year in which the Holy Sepulchre Church was attacked severely and destroyed. But despite the order of Al-Hakim to the Muslims to attack the churches, they did not attack the Nativity Church. And some people will explain this by saying that the Muslims had been allowed to use the southern transept of the church, that Omar ibn al-Khattab had prayed there so they could not destroy or harm the church. And then about 90 years after al-Hakim, the Crusaders entered the scene in 1099. When the Crusaders came to Bethlehem, they quite a bit changed the structure of the church. They added a hospital. They added a hospice for pilgrims. They also added the two bell towers on either side of the entrance. And they added a narthex. And I'll talk about the narthex later. The first Crusader king, Baldwin I, was crowned to become the king of the Crusader Jerusalem Kingdom on the 25th of December on Christmas Day in the year 1100 inside the Nativity Church. And 65 years later, the Crusaders did a big renovation of the church. And that is the time in which the wall mosaics were made and the columns were painted. And I'll talk more about that in a little bit. Since the Crusader time, there have been several other renovations, several additions, changes to the church. I mean, we're talking about a period of 800 years until today, so definitely things didn't stay exactly the same. But the church that we see today, in its essence, is the same church as the church that the Crusaders used to visit. And before we start our virtual visit to the church, I want you to realize that this church has been in use by the local Christian community. 
It is definitely one of the most visited churches by foreign pilgrims, and it has a very important value for Christians from all around the world. But it is also the church in which local Christian Palestinians get baptized, get married, have their funerals. And the church is also shared by different church denominations. And that is something we should also talk about before we enter the church. And I don't want to go too deep into this subject, but in general, the church is divided between the Orthodox, the Catholics, and the Armenians. The Orthodox is the oldest and longest existing church in the Holy Land. It traces its root back to the first Christians, early Christianity. The Catholics really made their entrance to the Holy Land in the Crusader period with the establishment of the Franciscan Order, named after Francis of Assisi. He visited the Holy Land in the 13th century. He established a good connection with the Muslims. He met with Malik al-Kamil, the nephew of Saladin, the Sultan of Egypt. And from the 14th century, the Franciscans managed to become the custodians over several of the holy sites and the churches in Palestine. Because there were several important holy sites that not only the Franciscans, but also the other Christian denominations made a claim to, there were many quarrels and even some real fights between these Christian groups about who had the custody over these places. And the situation became very tense in the year 1847, because in that year, the silver star that the Catholics had placed on the floor in the cave to mark the spot where Jesus was born was stolen. And this had much bigger consequences than only a fight between the clergy in the church, because the Catholics were supported by the French, who also wanted to have a foothold in the Holy Land, and the Orthodox were supported by the Russians. And, of course, there were some other geopolitical interests. So the theft of the Silver Star from the Nativity Church was one of the events that contributed to the Crimean War. And that lasted for three years, between 1853 and 1856. Now, in that time, Palestine was part of the Ottoman Empire, and the Ottoman Sultan Abdul Majid decided that he wanted to define exactly in an official document who was responsible for what part of the church, who could use what part of the church for services, and in which time, which route could people take, who was responsible for cleaning, who had the keys, and everything like that. Everything had to be absolutely clear on how to share the space. And that not only for the Church of the Nativity, but for all the shared holy sites, a total of nine sites. And this understanding about the use of the holy sites is called the status quo. Nothing can be changed, nothing can be moved or renovated without the consent of all the groups that are involved. And if you've heard the episode of the Holy Sepulchre, then you maybe remember the immovable ladder on the facade of the church, 
which is a result of exactly this status quo. Because they don't know who put it there and they don't know who is responsible for it and they cannot agree on moving or they don't even want to ask each other for any kind of change. That is why the immovable letter is still there. The Nativity Church that we are about to enter is mainly shared between the Orthodox and the Armenians. The Catholics have only a small altar in the Nativity Grotto, but they have all their church services in the next door, St. Catherine Church. The Nativity Church is UNESCO World Heritage since 2012. It was originally on the list of World Heritage Sites in Danger because of the bad situation it was in. But after the renovations that took place since 2012, it was taken off this list of places in danger in 2019. And one last important event to mention before we really start the virtual tour is that in the year 2002, the Israeli army entered into several Palestinian cities. That was during the uprising of Palestinians against the Israeli military occupation called the Second Intifada. In 2002, the city of Bethlehem was under siege for over 40 days, and a group of about 200 Palestinians sought refuge in the Church of the Nativity, and then the Israeli army besieged the church. They killed eight people and wounded about 40 people. One of the people who was shot was the bell ringer of the church, called Samir Ibrahim Salman. The siege of the church sparked global outrage. The Vatican got involved the Greek Orthodox Church was involved and eventually a deal was brokered to end the siege and 13 of the Palestinians who survived the siege were exiled to Europe and further 26 people were sent to the Gaza Strip. And when you visit the church, you can still see some of the bullet holes of this attack, especially in the courtyard of the St. Catherine Church. We will now start the visit of the church and that I will leave for the second part of this episode that you can hear if you tune in again in about two weeks time. And that's the end of this week's episode. Thank you for listening. You know, producing this podcast takes a lot of time and there are also costs for hosting the podcast, for the website and some of the subscriptions related to online recording and editing. So if you enjoy listening to Stories from Palestine, which is available completely for free, then you can do a donation on the Kofi platform and that is really very helpful even if it's just a little contribution. Because if all listeners do that once in a while, then I can continue producing new episodes. It's very easy. Just click the link in the show notes right after this message. And I hope you will listen again to the next episode. <laughs>